field experience, this was one of the uh, lessons from Red Hat and Linux, is that field experience matters the most. Everyone has a theory about, I want to change the software to do this, or theoretically, let's, let's, uh, this upgrade will have this effect. What I learned from 15 plus years in the Linux community is that, uh, excuse my language, engineers talk a lot of bullshit. And at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what's deployed in the field, what's working in the field, how it's working in the field. Field data trumps everything else. Welcome to Noted 0.2.0. Segway2x is the gift that keeps on giving. We are learning a lot. And learning with us, we have here my co-host, Michael Goldstein. How are you, Michael? Hey, hey, hey. Doing well. So it was canceled uh, two weeks ago, right? About that time, yeah. And the reason it was canceled... Uh, Jeff, Jeff actually provided us Jeff Garzik, that is the uh, you know de lead developer on or lead and only developer on uh, Segway2x. He said the cancellation announcement originated from learning that miners would not mine on Segway2x beyond T plus twelve hours after the fork point. This this is an important point to understand because it makes clear that. Miners do. Miners will mine the fork that the users want them to mine on. So a miner can't just go and do their own thing and magically, by some sort of labor theory of value, create a coin that's worth something just because they put some proof of work into it. There has to actually be market demand for that coin. And it seems as though the miners decided that after 12 hours, if there's no market demand for Segwit2x's coin, that they would stop mining it and go back to mining the old chain, which is not long enough to starve the old chain of hash power to the point that its market price goes down. So the, the game theory on that kind of fell through for Segwit2x. It also doesn't even seem long enough to find a proper price discovery regardless, even if you actually did believe in your product. I mean, how, how many times has Bitcoin taken a long time to, to you know, grow in market cap again? Yeah, that's a good point. We can't, it, it would be, and this is a good point against futures markets too, is that the whole point of prices is that they change, they go up and down. So to take a snapshot and make a decision based on that, whether it's to what you're going to call Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin. That said, we don't really have a better guide than prices. Uh, they just take time to shake out and reflect fundamentals. So 12 hours is definitely not long enough to show fundamentals. And so they canceled it. There's also the... There's also the, the folly, by the way, of uh, this entire time, they'd always called it an upgrade. Um, and I don't think 12 hours is long enough for a Bitcoin upgrade either. I mean, how, how long does it take for us to see substantial amounts of the network to take on install and run Bitcoin Core version 0.15 or 0.15.1 or whatever? 
Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't happen immediately. It takes time for the network to do this because this is a decentralized, distributed network, um, and each node is sovereign. Um, and as we'll learn later on in in what we're discussing, this uh, this causes problems elsewhere in the Segwit two X saga as well. Well, Michael, you can spin up AWS nodes pretty quickly. I mean, come on, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think this shows the weakness of the theory that was being put forth by the New York Agreement signatories. And their theory is that governance of Bitcoin is controlled largely by miners. And thus, miners can vote with their hash rate on proposals to hard fork Bitcoin. It seems as though that theory was completely misguided, and I, th I think it was misguided both in theory and disproven in practice by the events we saw over the last two weeks. And the theory I have about Bitcoin's governance is that it is a peer-to-peer network-based governance, and thus you can't actually force the network onto a different consensus by having miners vote on proposals because there are both mining and non-mining nodes. And quite a lot of economic activity is verified with full nodes that are non-mining nodes. So the entire network needs to be seen as a whole. And I think that the part of the confusion is that Satoshi himself didn't anticipate this state of affairs in the white paper. Right. The, the classic, you know, one one computer, one vote language you can find in the white paper uh, really set the stage for this entire thing. Yeah. And so when we say, well, look, non-mining nodes matter too, then people get into the mindset of, all right, well, why have mining at all? This sounds like proof of stake. And I think that you need both and obviously, like, this sounds like proof of stake, but it's not, that to me is an absurd comparison. They're not the same at all. But I think that we need both miners and the network consensus, the peer-to-peer -peer network consensus with non-mining nodes uh, to make a whole. But at the end of the day, the miners are contractors for the network. They're not the network. Now that we've disproven the theoretical construct of minor democracy, we now have a situation where we're learning that it's not just the governance model that was broken. The development process for Segwit2x was also broken. To put it lightly. Yeah, to put it lightly. I'm really, that's a huge euphemism broken. I mean, it, it was a dumpster fire. So uh, thankfully, we have an explanation of the results of this broken development process in production. And we only saw it in production uh, last week when the hard fork was supposed to happen, but then did not happen. So let's turn to Jimmy Song, Segwit2x Bugs Explained article that he published on bitcointechtalk.com. Highly recommend visiting that website. We'll put the link in the show notes. He put together a technical explanation of what happened. Let's just jump right into it. The Segwit 2x hard fork was called off a little over a week ago 
in an email post to the 2X mailing list. Several parties threatened to split the network anyway, and we eagerly awaited for block 494-784. So in the interest of uh, not having to say large numbers, I'm just going to say the last digit because it's not going to change the meaning of this at all. Uh, to see whether someone would mine the 2x hard fork or not. As it turns out, there was a bug in the Segwit2x software, which caused the client to stop at block two. In this article, I'm going to examine the details of what caused the software to stop, why it stopped a block before it was supposed to, and what would have happened had Belshi and the other New York agreement signatories not canceled the hard fork a week early. The setup. The 2x part of the hard fork had been planned for the past six months. The New York agreement was agreed to in late May. The code was written mostly in June, and the BTC1 slash Segwit2x software was released in July. Important note there. Uh, so most of the code was done in June, and it was released in July, meaning there was months for all of this to have been figured out. But please uh, continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the specifics of the New York agreement required that one, SegWit be activated at 80% of 95%. So that happened. Uh, two, 2x hard fork would be activated within six months of May 23rd. The software was created in the BTC1 repository. I don't know why they called it BTC1. Do you know, Michael? I don't know. You'd think they'd call it BTC2x. Or maybe they want it to be number one or... Oh, you know what I think it is? Yeah, I think they wanted to do a major version upgrade from 0.15. Actually, no, from 0.14 right, to 1.14. Anyway, uh, with so, I mean, I guess that means they would need to create a new repository with every ma major version number. It's very innovative. <laughs> uh, with lead developer Jeff Garzik. To make the first condition happen, they incorporated James Hilliard's BIP91 proposal, which indeed successfully activated SegWit on the network on August 24 at block 481.824. To make the second condition happen, BTC1 software included a clause that activated a hard fork to double the block size exactly 144 times 90 blocks after SegWit activation. This number was chosen because 10 minutes per block means about 144 blocks per day. So 144 times 90 blocks would take about 90 days. This put the forking block height at 494.784 and the actual fork around November 15th or so, which would indeed satisfy the second part of the New York agreement. All right, now we're going to get into the bug. There were a limited number of differences in the BTC1 code base compared to Bitcoin Core. In total, there were about 500 lines of changes, most of which were not consensus critical. Yet, there were at least two bugs in the 100 or so changed lines to support a hard fork at block four. You can see that there's a parameter for how long it would take after SegWit activation to double the block size, specifically 144 times 90 blocks. In the code, this is a concept called SegWit seasoning. Basically, this lets SegWit exist by itself 
without a doubling of block size before 144 times 90 blocks. To figure out whether it's time to allow larger blocks, the Boolean variable f segwit seasoned is set to true if 144 times 90 blocks have passed. False if not. The next if statement specifically utilizes this Boolean to figure out what the maximum block base block size is supposed to be. Normally, base blocks would be rejected if the block is greater than one megabyte. But here we see that blocks are rejected if the block is greater than two megabytes should f segwit seasoned be true. This is the critical part of the consensus code that rejects blocks that are too large and thus requires a hard fork. To actually figure out whether f segwit seasoned should be set to true or false, the code here uses the version bits state function. Specifically, the code is supposed to look at the block 144 times 90 blocks previous and check if SegWit was active on the network. If SegWit was active 144 times 90 blocks ago, that means the greater than one megabyte base blocks are legal for this block. That's what this is supposed to test. Version bit state. There's a subtle bug here, and it has to do with how version bit state is called. To understand, take a look at the actual function defined in version bits.cpp. And I actually, so Jimmy has a screenshot of, of the CPP file, but I also looked at the header, and the header had an interesting comment that was warning about the issue that uh, Jeff tripped over. This is going to look like gobbledygook unless you know something about the code base, but allow me to explain. The first argument of the version bit state function is supposed to be a pointer to a block. Michael, do you, do you want to explain what a pointer is? In computer science, a pointer is just a, a value uh, that is not the value itself, but pointing to somewhere in memory where the value actually is. Okay. The variable name pindex previous indicates it's not the pointer to the block itself, but the block's parent. In fact, every other call to version bit state in the validation.cpp file specifically uses the point pointer to the parent block, not the block itself, for that reason. Here's the problem. pindex fork buffer above is 144 times 90 blocks before the current block, not the current block's parent. So in essence, we're looking at whether the block 144 times 90 minus 1 before the current one has SegWit activated or not. We are off by one block, and thus larger blocks get activated one block earlier. So that, that's fine. Uh, people make mistakes like this all the time. It's kind of to be expected in the software development process that the first attempt at writing a piece of code is going to contain subtle bugs like this. Yeah, to be clear, I have uh, little to no uh, C++ experience, and I very much need Jimmy's descriptions of what the code is doing to, to fully understand it. So, you know, would I, would I be able to write better code than Jeff, Jeff Garzik? No. However, there's a process that I would be willing to submit myself to that Jeff uh, did not seem to want to. Yeah, so let's get into that. How did this not get caught? And it was, we're back on Jimmy's paper here. 
This particular set of changes was part of a much larger pull request. The pull request has 221 comments, which is a lot for a pull request. Uh, <laughs> that would be very hard to, to work through, but most of which are arguing over the definition of two megabyte blocks. You can see that this particular commit doesn't actually make it into this pull request until way lower on the page. Only one person seems to have approved the changes. Optrizel, I've never heard of this person before. Have you, Michael? I have not. It's not clear to me that he has any experience in Bitcoin Core, but uh, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I, I've missed things in code reviews. It happens. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and there are complaints near the end by Didalnix. He started Bitcoin Cash um, or maintains it about this pull request not having enough tests. So there's kind of two things here. One, you would generally want to have more than one reviewer on your code because it's so easy to miss minor, or subtle bugs like this. And two, you would want to have tests that verify that the behavior you are expecting is the behavior that actually happens when the code runs. Yeah, uh, as we can remember in, in computer science, Linus's law uh, as Eric Raymond put in the Cathedral in the Bazaar, is uh, the law that states, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Given enough eyeballs is an important qualification there. Here we had a total of four eyeballs from two people, and the bug was not rendered shallow. So errors on errors. We're back to Jimmy's piece. Uh, this code snippet of calculating 144 times 90 blocks passed was accepted as the right way of doing things, and nobody caught the fact that this would cause problems later. In order to make sure that the 2x hard fork wouldn't be overtaken by the 1x chain and reorganized, basically completely wiped out, they instituted a rule for wipeout protection. This requires the forking block to have greater than one megabyte base block size. The same logic as above was used and essentially forced block three to have a block size greater than one megabyte and not block four. This is why BTC1 is stuck on block two, because BTC1 software is waiting for a greater than one megabyte base block at block three. Ouch. But wait. But there's wait, more. there's more. As if this off by one bug wasn't enough, there's another bug in the block assembler code. Block assembler is part of miner.cpp, which is the code responsible for creating new blocks. Generally, this is only code useful to miners as they're the only ones that actually create new blocks. It's specifically, the variable fWitnessSeason is not initialized, but gets used. This is undefined behavior as Peter Wool has shown. Now, this is pretty cool. Peter Wool uh, was on Twitter responding to Tony De Silva, who had called out John's assessment of a C++ bug and Thanks to Jack Dorsey's foresight, he Jack Dorsey increased the character limit to 280 characters. So Peter Wool was able to write a fully functioning C++ snippet that demonstrates this bug in a simplified manner. In case anyone is doubting uh, that Jack Dorsey is a total Bitcoin maximalist, he made an extremely controversial 2x change to his own tweet chain. Uh, in order to make sure that such tweets could be put out to uh, take care of the shitcoiners. 
He's a hero. He's a hero. So why is this important? Well, it turns out that this particular variable determines the maximum block size and weight that the software will make. It's, if this variable is false, then the software will never make a large enough block to fork the chain since the maximum block will be 4 million and not 8 million as the specifications of the 2x hard fork require. Conversely, if this variable is true, then the software will generate invalid blocks before the fork of the chain. So it was possible that even if a miner had wanted to mine on 2x, this software wouldn't let them. This code change was introduced in, a pull, in this pull request. And once again, Jeff Garthick was the author and it was merged with perhaps one reviewer, Faisal M, who did not catch the bug. So this is, this, is a, this is an important issue in software development, especially with a language like C++. You need to initialize your variables so that they're not just grabbed out of whatever is there in memory. Right, especially in a distributed decentralized governance system uh, where all nodes have to agree on the blockchain down to every single last bit. Yeah, you would want your code to be running and at least attempt at being deterministic in the way it runs. So let's see, you know, maybe this is the big nothing burger and it, we shouldn't care. What would have happened if 2x had not been canceled? Miners that were planning to fork with 2x would naturally have thought that block four was the block since Jeff Garzik and the Segway2x team, and maybe team should be in quotes there, have stated numerous times that this was the forking block. And when Jimmy says stated numerous times, uh, stated numerous and times each individually linked to an instance of Jeff declaring that block four is when the, ha the fork would happen. Now, even if miners weren't using the code above, which would possibly have prevented them creating bigger blocks, they would have customized their software to find larger blocks for block four, not block three. This would have caused the same stall at block two, and everyone would have started to try to debug what was causing the problem. Most likely, some miner would have figured things out and simply mined a large block to fork 2x anyway. How long that would have taken is anyone's guess, but it's pretty clear this would have been a PR disaster. So I, I actually don't think it would have taken long because it didn't take long for people to figure things out despite the fork not happening. Yeah, I mean, we saw how quickly uh, Jeff himself was able to put out a patch on a, a bug he was, he was hardly willing to take ownership of. Yeah, put out a patch and then tell people to run it despite no testing and no code review or anything. So... You know, even if he had figured it out, even if he had figured it out in production, he would have put out a hot fix. And who knows, maybe his hot fix has other subtle bugs that we don't know about because no one's tried it. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Right. Fucking thing sucks. More than that. As Greg Maxwell points out here, exchanges would have frozen accounts as of block four, not block three. So all of the balances for 2x coins would have been off depending on who got in on block three. This again would cause some serious damage. So uh, I think this is called taking a UTXO snapshot, 
which is basically what's what's the state of all the unspent outputs at a specific block height. And if you take it at the wrong block height, then obviously your information about who to give 2x coins to or not uh, is going to be completely off. Well, not completely off, right? Only off by the amount of transactions that happened in the uh, in the following block. Definitely, it, it certainly creates database corruption, though. Yeah, you have to spend your time reconciling all of this information, and uh, good luck not introducing bugs in your reconciliation. So, yeah, overall, it would have been catast- not catastrophic. It would have been uh, really bad. And I think that you know, let's say the New York Agreement the uh, centralized group of CEOs had decided to continue and not call it off a couple of weeks ago. I think that essentially it would have caused Segwit2x to cancel itself immediately. And miners would have used it as an excuse to not honor the agreement and to not even honor the 12 hours. Yeah. Conclusion, reviewing and testing consensus changes is really, really hard. It looks like BTC1 had exactly one coder and one reviewer for these critical consensus changes. And that simply is not enough to detect subtle bugs like the first or obvious bugs like the second. I, I think Jimmy's being pretty hard on him to call the uninitialized variable an obvious bug um, because I, I don't know how experienced Jeff is with C++ variable initialization. I mean, the, the, the Linux uh, kernel is written in C, correct? Uh, yes. So maybe, maybe... Well, you should be initializing everything. Then. You have to initialize everything in C. Okay, I guess you're right. So really, all right, you know what? Jimmy's right. This was an obvious bug, and let's not be charitable towards uh, Jeff, who should have known better. Uh, What's more, because the off-by-one change was accepted at a fairly early date, June 15th, later on when the code was used for wipeout protection, the code was assumed to be good due to a previous review. So if I recall correctly... At that earlier date, wasn't the development process kind of like under wraps and not particularly open to outside review? Well, you could you could join the BTC one Slack if you could get in. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't get kicked out. Yeah, so there's there was not really uh, you know publicly publicly accessible places you could see the code and review yourself. Well, the the GitHub repository was public, but. I think that a lot of re- a lot of review and discussion happens on IRC or on other open platforms um, in the mailing list, but there was no such thing for BTC1. I think the mailing list was closed at the time, and you had to agree to a certain set of criteria to even join because he wanted to keep out the toxic core trolls. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a criticism I had of it often. Like, you don't necessarily need to have everything on GitHub or any specific uh, channel, but I do think that it's important for any of these discussions to have permalinks. So you can send anyone to a publicly accessible snippet of whatever code or um, idea or whatever that you're, you're trying to share. Uh, all that needs to be open. And, and Slack, for instance, is actually a terrible platform for this because 
Um, the, the archives usually are not public to people outside of the team. Um, while with IRC, there's bots to just you know log the stuff, and you can go see the, the Bitcoin dev and Bitcoin wizards logs all you want. Another thing I'd like to say about that you know paragraph is, that, oh, the code was assumed to be good due to a previous review. Uh, I know b- both you and I are big fans of, of Jocko Willink book, Extreme Ownership, and he has the podcast, his own podcast. Um, and one of his... Uh, you know, important important lessons. Title of his latest book is "Discipline Equals Freedom," and here's a case where uh, had you just done the work to give a proper review, then you'd be actually free to assume that the the review was a little better than it was. Uh, but because you did not have that proper discipline, <laughs> bad things really happened. Essentially, even one or two week reviews in a chain of reviews can break the entire consensus system with a catastrophic bug. Yeah, that, you got to be, you have to take what Jocko calls extreme ownership over the process to make sure that even if you have one reviewer who doesn't see the bug you introduced, you should have the best, most knowledgeable people reviewing your code. And I don't know how much it would have cost the New York Agreement and Jeff to ask the existing core developers to review the changes that were being made. I get the sense that the cost would not have been monetary, but rather would have been ego. And one of Jocko's principles is check your ego. I think that Jeff Garzik has a pattern of not checking his ego. And if I were to really do a root cause analysis on what happened here, I'd say Jeff Garzik's ego was the root cause of this debacle. And I'm assuming he did not introduce this bug maliciously in an attempt to benefit his ICO. I, d- I don't want to assume you know, that he's a criminal, but that, that too is possible. I think that the, the wiser assumption is that Zigo got in the way. Uh, so let's uh, finish this here. Hopefully, this can be an object lesson in making sure critical changes are reviewed very thoroughly. Stay safe and go thank the developers that do the hard work of not just coding, but reviewing. So uh, Jimmy wrote this piece. Uh, we added our commentary. Obviously, Jimmy is not responsible for the uh, off-color remarks we made. And uh, Jimmy, I want to put in a plug for Jimmy because he has been putting up a lot of resources that explain both current events and bigger picture Bitcoin technical issues. He also has been hosting a series of seminars across the country. He has a seminar coming up in Austin, Charlotte, North Carolina, London, Amsterdam, and Seoul, South Korea. So if you're around any of those locations, definitely go sign up. We'll put a uh, link down in the show notes. Yeah, the the programming blockchain seminar, uh, for those who don't know. Yes, it will enable you to learn about all of these arcane technical concepts that I don't think are going to be arcane for long. I think that they are going to have to enter the mainstream in the technical community, at least, because there's an increasing demand for software developers who understand how Bitcoin works. And quite often, you'll have altcoins that are based on Bitcoin. So people will hire a developer to work on their altcoin 
even if you only have experience with Bitcoin, it's, it's very relevant. So even with blockchain technology that is not Bitcoin, I think that the programming blockchain seminar would be extremely useful. There's a lot of cryptography that's covered. I went to the very first one in Austin and it was, it was fantastic. I learned a lot. Um, I felt much more comfortable with a lot of low level uh, Bitcoin programming stuff that I had not previously been as comfortable with. Yeah. So thanks, Jimmy, for writing this up. I also want to credit John Newberry, who it appears as though he was the first one to track down the specifics of the bug. He had a fantastic tweet storm that this article was actually basically based on John Newberry's tweet storm. So props to both of them uh, for that hard work. And John Newberry specifically, his his big claim to fame in, in the Bitcoin development world and Bitcoin Core is working on the test framework. Um, so he is one of these developers that do the hard work of not just coding, but reviewing. Big, big thank you to John Newberry and, and all the rest of the team. Yes, he definitely helps us avoid having these problems in Bitcoin Core. And, and, and by the way, he, uh, he did get uh, banned from the uh, BTC1 Slack. Yes, uh, John advised the members of the BTC1 Slack to not run the hotfix that Jeff put out. And in fact, to just generally not run software that Jeff writes. And this was, I think this was taken as trolling by Jeff. But if Jeff had detached and stepped back a little and looked at the facts objectively, I think that he would have agreed with John that no one should be running his software. Yeah, everyone, he should he should be the first one to say that, hey, I've put out this code, but we really need people to review it so that we can, you know, get it out there and, and fix the bug. Jeff does not acknowledge that there was a bug. If I read his public communications correctly, it seems as though he's either in denial himself, which I don't think is the case given that he put out a patch, or he is trying to kind of do some damage control and make sure this doesn't affect his metronome ICO. Either way, I think that it is inexcusable for a software engineer to deny or not acknowledge that his software had a bug and to not acknowledge that there was inadequate review and testing. I think that denying those things indicates a severe lack of professionalism. And I think it disqualifies you from being a developer in this space. We need people who are honest with themselves, honest with the public, and trustworthy. We we talk about Bitcoin being trustless. One of the key underlying assumptions, and people criticize Bitcoin a lot for this, is that if you don't have the technical knowledge, on some level, you have to trust the software developers who are writing the code. And it's a valid point. So my response to that is twofold. One, learn to code, learn to review code so that you can reduce the amount of trust you have on others. And two, don't trust untrustworthy developers. And Jeff Garzik specifically, but others too, has proven himself to be untrustworthy. Oh, I mean, I, I can personally say, you know, I'm I'm a developer, and I've been in situations where I've I've de- deployed bugs to to a production server, and I've had to you know deal with the fallout for it. Um, and I do have to say, actually taking ownership of the bug, 
makes it a lot easier to take care of that crisis situation than uh, doubling down on, you know, uh, your ego. Yeah. And it's, it's not a good look. Everyone sees through if you're just trying to deflect blame and not taking ownership. I don't think anyone's fooled by it. All right, let's uh, wrap it up. Michael, thank you for coming on to uh, explore this issue with us. Uh, Always a pleasure. We are going to be interviewing Seyfuddin Amus next. Look forward to speaking with him. It will be a lot less technical than this episode. We're going to be focusing on the economics of sound money, why Bitcoin is sound money, uh, Safe's upcoming book on this subject, as well as the importance of carnivory. I don't think that we can speak with Safe without touching on that <laughs> issue. Um, and frankly, we're all in Bitcoin so that we can learn more about carnivory. I don't think anyone would deny that. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Michael. You have a good one. You too. Bye. Jocko, I am a chronic excuse maker. <sighs> How do I stop making excuses and get things done? <laughs> the chronic excuse maker. How do you stop making excuses? This is actually pretty simple. And I said it the other day, and you have to realize, you have to know, you have to accept that all your excuses are lies. They are lies, all of them. Think about the things that you tell yourself, the lies you use to rationalize taking the easy road. Taking the easy road and leaving discipline behind. Think about them. You don't have time. That's a lie. You don't have support. That's a lie. You don't have the equipment or the gear. Lies. You don't, you don't know the best way. Who cares? That's a lie. Or you're too old or you're too young. Of course you're too old or too young. Lie. And there's you're too busy. Sure you are. That's a lie. And you're too tired or you're too sore or you're just plain not feeling it. Lies, lies, lies. And the list goes on and on and on. And it doesn't stop if you don't make it stop. So recognize. Recognize the excuses are not valid. They aren't. They're trumped up. They're conjured up, they're fabricated, they're lies. And how do you stop the lies? You stop the lies with the truth. The truth, the truth will set you free. The truth will stand and the truth will deliver you from procrastination and laziness and the downward spiral that comes with a lack of discipline. So 
don't believe the lies believe the truth and the truth is you have time you have the skill you have the knowledge and the support and the willpower and the discipline to get it done so cast out the lies burn them down and listen to the truth and live the truth and go out and get it done